Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. So turn with me now in your Bible, and uh, we're going to start with a series on the Ten Commandments within a series, which is the book of Exodus. And uh, this morning, I'm going to read just the first couple of verses, and we will focus on this first commandment. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Just so far. Lord, we do pray again as we come to your word that as those who are dependent creatures, that you would minister to us through your word. Lord, not only providing information, but leading us in faith to be drawn closer to you, being those who give you what you are worthy of in exclusive devotion. You are our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we get to the first commandment, and I would like to introduce this particular commandment by quoting a theologian and author by the name of Brian Edwards. And he introduced this uh, commandment by showing the extreme importance, and, and I do want to impress that upon you and upon us this morning, that there is an extreme importance and value on this first commandment as being a foundational presupposition in the life of any believer. So listen to these words. And he uses an analogy. In other words, he's taking a picture of something that we're familiar with, and he's saying, think about that in terms of this commandment. Every profession and trade has its regulations to ensure safety. There are the right and wrong ways of doing things. And the more potentially dangerous the outcome, this is important, the more potentially dangerous the outcome, the more precise the rules. Now I'll give some examples. An architect may design a beautiful building that is aesthetically pleasing in all respects. But unless it conforms to the building regulations, you will never get permission to build. And the reason for that is the building might fall down. And so, why does the architect find this? It's because, not because there's an inefficient or difficult council or the building inspector just wants to, be the mon to monopolize the design of buildings. The reason is because, because to ignore regulations would be to jeopardize the safety of other people. Now we can apply that principle regarding public safety by precise and protective rules uh, across the board, regardless of trade, regardless of profession. Uh, I've mentioned architecture, but what about engineering? Would you be happy to drive on a bridge or over a bridge if those engineering rules of strength of materials and design were not applied? You wouldn't want to do that. Imagine you were to fly in an airplane on Monday or Tuesday night 
and, and, and some of the engineering designs or aeronautical principles were not applied, you would not want to get on that plane because how do you know it's going to get to London or New York or, or uh, to any other place in the world? And, of course, that applies in the area of medicine, uh, in the medical fraternity. Now, I want us to use that analogy this morning to think about, to consider the stakes involved in religion. Faith. What are those stakes that we ought to be thinking about, that we ought to consider as we come to the Bible, as we seek to understand God, as we seek to hear the will of God? Well, we need to understand that the stakes are high because eternal salvation may be a prospect or condemnation, so one or the other. It could be a question of anguish or doubt or putting it bluntly. It could be heaven or hell. could be blessing or curses. So there is a foundational principle that God is giving to us his people, which he gave to the people of Israel, which cannot be ignored. This is fundamental. This is basic. This is absolutely essential. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. God explicitly commanding that you must not have any other God. Now, I have two points this morning, and one is a negative point. I'm going to deal with the command as it appears, and then I'm going to look at it positively and to see how we can uh, move forward with respect to what God is saying. So number one, not having any other gods as your God. I want you to think about that personally this morning. Now, the words before me are important. In the Hebrew, those words actually are translated before my face. God does not want to see, he does not want to have, in our understanding, from a human point of view, any other gods placed before him in, uh, in, or even alongside of him. He does not want any other gods in his sight. What does that mean? It means that God does not share, does not want to have shared loyalty. Bit of this and a bit of that and a bit to God. No, he's, that's not acceptable to God. He has zero tolerance towards even the smallest compromise of the exclusive loyalty that he requires. How serious is that? Well, it is very serious. Something of the weight and, and seriousness of this uncompromising demand is evidence in the consequence for any person, and particularly speaking to the people of Israel at this point in time, the consequence of any kind of flirting with other gods. Listen to Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord. So this is something very, very close to the heart of God. It's unacceptable. It's despicable to God. It's an abomination to the Lord. Now we must remember that these Ten Commandments and this first commandment comes in preparation for the people of Israel to enter the promised land. God had rescued them from, from slavery, and he was moving them through to the prospect and ultimately the promised land of Canaan. And in that process, not only of movement, but of settling in Canaan, 
God knew that they would face the attraction of other gods. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Verse 14, again it brings us together. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. He knows that there will be competition. People's hearts will be sought to be captivated. And we need to know that that same issue and challenge applies to us today. There will always be the possibility of other gods alluring and attracting. Other gods that sometimes we even ourselves create to take the place of Jehovah. Sometimes they're identified idols, sometimes they're just very subtle intruders that we're not even aware of. Well, I want to go back to the passage and, and, and then we'll apply it. But the competing gods that they would face in Canaan were very obvious. And I'm going to look at three of them, uh, well-known uh, gods of those nations. The first was Molech. Molech was a worship that would descend into cruelty. And there was a specific kind of cruelty that we would think absolutely horrific. It was the practice of this cult to throw babies in a fire and burn them. That's awful. And the principle of cruelty applied so long as it would lead to what they wanted. And I wonder today with the prolific incidence of abortion if it's not exactly the same principle being applied, because the principle that they undertook was the means justified the end, which we know, of course, is pragmatism. And so they would do this despicable thing because it provided them with something that they wanted and worked. That was Malek. A more well-known god, little g, that they would encounter in the land of Canaan was Baal. There, as a people in Canaan, they concluded that there is a great mystery in the growth of things. And I'm sure you've asked yourself the question, why does a plant grow? Why is it that we see fruit appearing on a tree? And so they asked that question, what makes things grow? And so these idol worshippers identified Baal as the power of growth behind living and growing things. And then taking it a little bit further, they saw that there's one specific type of growth that is more wonderful than any other types of growth, the power that conceives a child. It fascinated them. They called it the sex force that gives life. They then turned the sexual act into something sacred. And so the temples of Baal had crowds of priestesses that you can read about in the unfolding, particularly of the prophetic books, who were sacred prostitutes. And so sexual immorality became an act of worship, coupled with gluttony and drunkenness. And then just very quickly, a third god that they would encounter, did encounter, was that of Mammon, 
which was worshiping the abundance of things that were around them. That they believe that life consists in the things we possess. It's the God of the animal appetite. What shall we eat? What shall we wear? What will satisfy the cravings of the sinful nature? What is it that will, will, will please the senses that we have been given? Well, those just very briefly, three of the distinct gods identified as competition in Canaan. In our context today, don't think that idolatry has disappeared. You may not have a Buddha statue on your shelf, but the reality and the temptation and the competition is rife. And so anything, anything in principle that takes your exclusive, wholehearted worship away from the one true God is idolatry. I want to extract some principles that we can apply in our day if this commandment or when this commandment is disregarded. There are certain approaches that are, these approaches we need to see are despicable in the eyes of God, in the sight of God. Number one, and I've already spoken of this, the serving of a false God and not the true God. Unacceptable. It's forbidden by this particular commandment and it's called idolatry. I'll just give you one passage with reference to this through the prophet Jeremiah chapter 2. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, okay, the tree they're identified as a god, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back on me. But at the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. And where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. See the problem? Idolatry. There is a second principle issue that we need to look out for. And it's the joining of a false god with a true god. I've called this, or it is called, syncretism. You have idolatry as a broad principle of this distraction away from God. Now you have a practice of syncretism, and, and we find this a practice amongst, the Israel, Israel, amongst Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17. Wonderfully to read, or it is wonderful to read the first verse. So they feared the Lord. That's what we ought to do. That's what they should have done. But also served their own gods. See the problem? After the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried. So they took their faith that had been delivered, that had been revealed, that had been given to them, and they blended it in. They mixed it in. And they created, created this, what I would call, concoction. A concoction of acceptable religion to themselves. They did that which was palatable, that was pleasing to themselves, and they disregarded the exclusive demand that God had revealed. Foreign to biblical Christianity. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper here because it is prevalent in our own context in South Africa. Syncretism is rife. A couple of examples I could think of. The, there is a blending, a mixing, a merging of Pentecostal Christianity with some elements of African traditional religion. 
Now, at Easter time, if any of you want to go on holiday on the N1 North, you know that it's going to be a frightfully busy journey. And the reason is because there are literally millions of people that belong to the Zionist church. And the Zionist church has taken elements of particularly Old Testament Christianity, and especially that of prophetic work and, and healings and, and other bits of Christianity, and they've blended it, they've merged it with something of the African traditional religion. But there are more examples. Biblical Christianity can also be blended, and we're beginning to see this more frequently, even in our own city, with materialism. The hunger for mammon, for things. And so you have churches emerging, churches developing, massive churches functioning on the basis of material prosperity. Elements of Christianity, using terminology that we use in the Christian church, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the importance of the cross, but at the same time absorbing these elements of mammon and so blending a syncretistic approach in their faith. We also need to be aware and speak to the issue of the blending of Christianity with ancestor worship. Now, I know, and I've been long enough at Central Baptist Church to know that this is even a struggle and can be a struggle among us. There's some folk who've, 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 who've turned their backs on ancestor worship. But I've also heard in other instances where there is that struggle to let go because of pressure from family, from, from parents and from grandparents and from the context of community and culture. But we need to recognize, is, is ancestor worship something which ought to be blended and mixed into Christianity? No, it can't be. Another example of syncretism is that of blending, and I've seen this more recently, and it's come to us from the USA, particularly through the Hollywood uh, media uh, machine, the blending of Eastern mysticism, things like yoga and meditation, also mixed into aspects of Christianity. So you see the point I'm making is that we too will find the temptation to be lured away from having an exclusive devotion to God. Thirdly, that's idolatry, it's syncretism. The third one is the belief that all gods have some value. We call this pluralism. Probably one of the bigger challenges, another big challenge that we're facing in the 21st century. Pluralism asserts that all religions are really heading in the for the same destination, but giving that destination or giving that destination a different name and the route to it different names. Now let me give you some examples. The destination may be identified, is identified by some as heaven or nirvana or paradise. And the way to get there, some people say, is Jesus. Other people say Krishna. Other people say Buddha. Other people say Allah. Some people say, yes, we call him God or the Lord. Other people speak of the great architect or Gaia or the great mother goddess of the earth. But pluralism uh, says that doesn't matter. The important thing is we're all going to get to the same place. All roads leading, as it were, to Rome. Very sadly, 
pluralistic thinking has permeated the minds of even some evangelical Christians. There's a growing reluctance, and, 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 and we, we must be cautious of this, not to be influenced by this kind of thinking. There's a growing reluctance to accept that there can be no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to accept that. We've got to be, that's what the Bible teaches. That's biblical Christianity. But it's becoming more and more difficult in an age. What is our age? It's, it's an age that has an atmosphere of tolerance, and relativism. And so it's becoming so hard to stand firm on this first commandment, this demand from God to worship Him alone. Well, that's the first point, and I've presented it in the way that uh, the commandment comes negatively. I now want to move on in this first commandment that demands that you and I ought to love Him if we are believers exclusively. Uh, for our God. And so secondly, having God solely, alone as your God. Again, I remind you of the context, God's declaration, the historical act of deliverance, His ownership of the people of Israel in that second verse, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And God did that so that they worship Him, that my people may worship me. Along the way, there were many who affirmed that kind of exclusive devotion to God. One of the examples I want to refer to is David in a song that he sings after he had been delivered from his enemies, particularly Saul. And he proclaims, sings, rejoices in the reality of God, the one true God. He exalts him as incomparably unique in Second Samuel 22. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? You see the conviction, and, and this is the positive side of this commandment. Is this God your rock? So I was a younger person back in the 70s, and uh, very influenced, very influenced by a group. In fact, I grew spiritually uh, as a result of their ministry, benefiting from the work of the organization known as Youth for Christ. I think some of the older people will remember that ministry, certainly in Johannesburg, where I grew up. Uh, this was a very vibrant uh, ministry. The slogan back then it was a slogan they believed back then. It was very helpful to me as a young person. The slogan was this, anchored to the rock, geared to the times. Sadly, they let go of the anchor. And if you look around today, you're not going to see much evangelical work coming from Youth for Christ. And the lesson we need to learn as we look at this commandment, you and I need to have our hearts and minds cemented, anchored to having God as our God. 
It is necessary not just on a particular day or occasion, but to be permanently anchored to having God as your God. That, that's what this passage is saying. Now, what does that mean to you? What does it mean practically? And I, I want to just give a couple of uh, statements along these lines. Uh, to have God to be your God, to state the obvious, is to acknowledge Him as the one true God. Do you do that? You see, the gods of the heathen are idols. Other gods are idols. Psalm 96, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Going across to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In other words, we need to see in our response the uselessness or that uselessness is a fitting description of idolatry. Again, as the prophet Jeremiah asked, chapter 14, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Is that something that you believe? Something I believe. We have God solely to be our God when it it comes uh, and is expressed from the depths of our heart. This is not some kind of compartmental acknowledgement. Well, there may be a God. We need to respond like when the people saw the prophets of Baal defeated. Remember that occasion when God sent fire from heaven? 1 Kings chapter 18, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Are we willing to do that? Do we want to do that? Acknowledgement, therefore, is more than mental assent. It is having your being, your gut, your heart being gripped and held by the reality of who God is. Bursting, bursting in your soul as we sing and as we live, bursting in wonder at the uniqueness of God, amazed at His awesome being. Exodus chapter 15, this is where I see the evidence of this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? To have God to be your God, secondly, is to respond appropriately to him. So God repeatedly uses the picture of marriage to teach Israel about loyalty, the required loyalty and exclusivity in this relationship that we have with him. It's therefore helpful, and I want us to think for a few minutes, consider the marriage relationship to give clarity as to fittingly relate to God. Now, I'm a little bit uh, old, I guess, and I've become a little bit outdated. But in the providence of God, I have a young daughter. She's still at school, uh, finishing school this year, and uh, she has updated me and frequently updates me on the dynamics and process in relationships that may or may not lead to marriage. So I'm going to give you just the steps. You need to be aware of this, uh, younger people and older people. My daughter tells me that the first step is vibing. (laughs) You're just checking each other out, or you're eyeing each other out. 
All right? The second step, the second step is dating. Now, she's, she clarified yesterday. She said to me, Dad, you need to know that dating is no commitment. We're just getting together. That's all. Getting together and still checking each other out. That is followed by a more committed state of being identified, self-identified as boyfriend and girlfriend. Followed by engagement and then finally marriage. Now I realize that these young people today are smart. We just fell in love and got married. Now my point is this. Each step in the process of getting married today requires a deliberate decision. You may think somebody is quite acceptable and you begin to vibe. And then you begin to see, hey, hang on a minute. I don't think so. Yes or no, isn't it? And, and the dating, you might discover this guy doesn't know how to eat and he snorts and sniffs and I don't know what else and, and, and not a chance. Oh, man, this guy's a real gentleman or she's really, you, you get the point. But, but at each stage, there is a decision that needs to be made. And so I want us to shift that kind of thinking over. Remember God using marriage as, a, as a, an analogy, as a fitting picture. Now, again, we understand the mysterious process of the drawing work of God to any particular individual, uh, any person, bringing people to himself. We know John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me. But we can't leave that there because we also know that there remains, the Bible shows us, a very real need to take responsibility in your relationship with God. For you and me, and this is the challenge that I'm trying to get to in terms of our appropriate response to God, like Joshua, chapter 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. You've got to choose. I need to choose. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, and people will make different decisions. But Joshua knew it, and you need to know it, and I need to know it. But as for me and my house, we've chosen. We've made a choice. We've resolved to serve the Lord. And so as in a marriage, responding appropriately to God requires ongoing resolve. And I want to pause there. And, 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 And if we were honest, as those who are married couples... Do you feel like you're in love every morning when you wake up? And her hairs are curlers. And his breath smells. And or you just grumpy. And, and and so what do you need to do? Every single day when you are married, there is there is a resolve, there is an honor. Oh, but I'm married. I'm married. My decision is to be loyal to this man or loyal to this woman. Because we're in covenant relationship. It's not just, well, we made some vows in 1980 on the 7th. No, 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 no. Every day. And so, as in a marriage, the kind of resolve that we need to display, an immediate example that came to me was Ruth, the converted Moabite, expressing to her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
And she continued to demonstrate it in the outworking as she, as she eventually became the mother in the genealogy uh, of, 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 of the generations that led to Jesus. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. So we can't just amble along or meander along in life. Thomas Watson, old Puritan, he says, the choosing is an act of mature deliberation. The Christian having viewed, why would you choose for God? Thomas Watson gives the answer. Having viewed the superlative excellencies in God. When you see God and who He is, as you understand who He is as He's revealed Himself to, you see some of these excellencies and being stricken with the holy admiration of His perfections, singles Him out from among other objects, setting His heart upon Him. And says as Jacob in Genesis 28, the Lord shall be my God. How does that practically look? Well, it means that we give God the adoration He's worthy of because of who He is. Excellencies, the superlative excellencies. Each one of us honoring God, giving Him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Each of these can be a message, willing to trust Him. But I trust in you. After the service this morning, somebody said to me, you know what, it's easy to trust God when things are going well test of your faith comes when things are not going well, whether you really own Him as your God. Having a heart to love Him, like the psalmist, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And then I, I thought I'd sum this up. And I thought, what is it that could sum up our practical response to God in, in, in Him being our God? It's being humble enough to obey him. Jeremiah chapter 42, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. I want to conclude, and I've, con I've concluded, I am going to conclude this message with one implication. In fact, I've called it an implication. I am given to sayings that people use. Uh, I had a mother that uh, always quoted sayings. Here's another saying that I learned. There are none so blind as those who will not see. If you're familiar with that saying. Well, I checked on Google. It's a saying apparently from 1546 by a certain gentleman by the name of John Haywood. I want to disagree with Google. Because that saying in principle, is given to us in Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read a bit of Romans chapter 1 to you. According to Paul, describing the state of the unbelieving heart, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, pushing it down. They don't want to see it. For what can be known about God... Is plain to them. That sentence is something every single person ought to think about. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, 
And then he gets specific. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things he has made. You should be fascinated and, 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 and see something of the amazing complexity and, and beauty in what has been made, and it should point you to God. But people suppress that. So they're without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then we get to the point I'm trying to make. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Bottom line is people preferred to put a picture of a fish on their shelf rather than worship the true living God. Makes them feel more comfortable. In our natural sinful state, we people refuse to see that which is plain to be seen about God. And so as I draw this message to a close, it should be no surprise to us to see why there is this relentless pursuit by people everywhere in the world of everything or anything other than God. None so blind as those who do not want to see. Sadly, the consequence of this action is the inevitability of facing the wrath of God. Scary. To, re to reject God is to have a destiny subjected to judgment and wrath. And so my point is, as I started in the beginning with a statement, the stakes are very high. There's no hope for anyone, anywhere, at any time, apart from God's saving work through Jesus Christ. And I'll go back to Romans. This is good news. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe as a gift. Grace is a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, folks, salvation is of the Lord, and there isn't any among us who can keep the commandments perfectly. But God has saved the believer, and the invitation to the unbeliever is to be saved. God saves men and women, whoever believes. And so the challenge to the unconverted, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, is belief. And if you don't want to believe or you can't believe, you need to go down on your knees and beg God to enable you to believe. The challenge to the believer is to give your body, your life, as a living sacrifice and constantly be working in being sanctified as one who has been delivered from sin and bondage in giving God the worship that He is worthy of. It is God's will that you and I have no other gods before Him. It is His will that we give exclusive devotion to God. And I would even say today, confirm today, that this is a foundational presupposition that will govern the way you live. It will govern your choices, your lifestyle ultimately leading to glorifying God. And so a final question this morning. It's a challenging question. Does God merely get a piece of your devotion? 
or are you willing to choose to be wholly devoted to him? It's a daily challenge to us all. And Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do no good thing. And even in this matter, Lord, of being sanctified and growing as believers, praying for your Holy Spirit to constantly transform us, even as we've learned from the renewing of our minds. Oh, Lord, to give you what you worship, what you're worthy of. And even praying, Lord, for any among us who do not believe. Oh, Lord, won't you open their eyes to see that which is so obvious. And also, Lord, to read that which you have given so plainly, so simply, that there is hope and life, forgiveness, prospects in Jesus. We pray this, Lord, that you would be glorified. And we know one day you will be glorified when every knee will, be, will bow and every tongue confess Jesus to be Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.